Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Simon Mason. Simon Mason is the front man of the High Town Pirates. We spoke about his band, plus we spoke about his early life growing up, becoming one of the key players in Britpop, and his descent into drug addiction, which lasted the best part of two decades. And then we spoke about how he got clean and how he's turned his life around and he's back on track. We spoke about all this and then at the end, Simon picked his heroes to come for dinner. Hope you all enjoy the podcast. I'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks. Right. Thank you very much, Simon Mason. Uh, Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, What I would say about you is you're an author, a frontman in a band, and a recovering drug addict, uh, amongst lots of other things. Amongst other things, I I, I check all those three boxes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, In no particular uh, order. um, I guess if you just kind of start off with your early life growing up and just tell us how that was and how that kind of shaped you. Well, um, how did that shape me? So um, I'm 54 in August. And when I've just said that, I've just gone, fucking hell. (laughs) Um, Getting on a bit. Um, And the reason that, that... actually sort of I laugh when I say it is I don't feel I don't know how you're supposed to feel mm-hmm. in your mid I don't feel like like when I was a kid 54 was ancient you uh-huh. know people's parents still dressed like it was the 1940s when they were 54 in the in the 70s I don't know do you know what I mean it was kind of 54 was very different I think people's lives had been much harder you know, my memories of people in their 50s when I was a kid was, you know, they, they'd fought in a war. Mm-hmm. Oh, those people. So um, my childhood, um, up until, well, the first five years were okay. The first five or six years were all right. And then, um, and then uh, uh, there was a lot of death, uh, a lot of, uh, of family members. Um, it, it got quite dark quite quickly, Martin, I guess is what I'm saying. I, we had a, my sister and I had mum and dad. We grew up in a, a little seaside town called Western Supermare, um, which is in Somerset. Um, and, you know, there's worse places to grow up. Um, it was very white. It was very um, normal, really. You know, uh, I, I remember... Um, first time I watched that movie Twin Towns and they describe Swansea as the graveyard of ambition. I thought, well, they've never fucking been to Western Supermare, clearly. <laughs> <These two. laughs> so there were, there were, you know, really early years, uh, my sister and I, we lost our, our aunt, my dad's sister, who was like a, another mum to us. She, she committed suicide. Um, my best friend, one of my best friends at school when I was 10, dropped dead in front of me. That was quite traumatic. I don't want to gloss over it too much, but, you know, um, my father died when I was 11, suddenly. Um, my grandfather, who'd come to live with us, um, he died 18 months after that. I was in a Catholic boarding school for 
five years, most of which I was subject of sexual abuse, physical bullying, psychological bullying. Uh, it's cheerful, isn't it? This. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, but you asked the question, and that's that's the reality of it. You know, the reality, for, unfortunately for me, was was it was it was shit. Right. Um, and the things that weren't shit, um, what were, uh, in fact, I listened to uh, this morning, just as I was kind of getting ready, I was having a cup of tea. Um, I was listening to the jam on, on vinyl. You know, that's how I listen to music again these days. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that wasn't shit. Or maybe that was the thing that made the stuff that was shit bearable was, was yeah. music. I got yeah. into music really young. Um, uh, I had a, a friend of mine at school who was a few years older than me, a, a few months after my, my dad died, and he came into my room one night with a, with a TDK C90 cassette compilation tape. And on that, and I tell this story all the time because it, it changed my life. You know, it was it was as pivotal and as life changing as my dad dying or or any of that stuff. You know, um, and, and this cassette that Martin Johnson, who's my mate to this day, and, and I'll you know give him a shout out now. Um, you know, the Clash and the Jam and the Who and the Pistols and and the Ruts and and the Specials and all that kind of stuff on this cassette. And um, you know, I was eleven years old. I, I, I use the word traumatized. I wouldn't have known that at the time, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I was traumatized. Um, I was struggling to cope with life, with the grief, with the loss, with the abuse. And I had this cassette and I had this portal to another world, you know, of, of music and um, absolutely escape. It was a, it was a lifeboat. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I just, like I said, I just, I've been buying vinyl like crazy again. <laughs> My wife doesn't listen to this, but I've been buying a little bit of vinyl recently. Let's put it like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I got this um, import four-track EP 12-inch with, with um, Start and Eaton Rifles and That's Entertainment and Going Underground on it. And I just blasted it out really loud this morning before, before I logged on and... Um, and I go back to being that 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid again. And I know every word still. Yeah. And I always yeah. will. Because that's that was my first love. You know, that was my first love. The jam were my first love. You never forget your first love, whether it's a girl or a band or a football team or whatever it is. And, um, yeah. So, that's a fairly long-winded answer to your question. It was pretty shit. And then... And then there was music, and then there was something that helped me survive. Right. So, um, what was school like then? What did the kind of school take a back seat then? So, for reasons I've never really understood, well, I, I could I could probably make an educated guess, but my mum thought it was a good idea, if possible, to, to send me off to a boarding school. We didn't have any money. just want to make a point of saying that. <laughs> um, it wasn't like, you know, a posh. Fuck, it wasn't eating, I'll tell you that much. Um, what it was was, you know, a Catholic boarding school with, with day pupils, who's some, some of whom whose parents had probably made a few quid. 
there were like army brats there, you know, whose parents were stationed in Germany or Singapore or wherever. There was a lot of um, kids from Hong Kong, kids from all over the world, all sort of thrown together in this sort of, um, you know, education in a way that if I thought my daughter, you know, who's 13, if I thought that's what her education was like, I'd, I'd have something to say about it, you know. Yeah. Corporal punishment, a very... Um, a lot of hypocrisy, you know, uh, and I don't want to go on a sort of, you know, anti-religious rant, you know, but um, it wasn't good. You know, it wasn't good. And, and there was a lot of collusion. There was a lot of paedophilia within, you know, the church. I mean, I'm not saying anything that isn't, you know, public knowledge. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, myself and other kids were caught up in all that. Um, I was trying to explain to my daughter the other day, like, what school was like for me. So... We had a teacher that used to smoke ciggies in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, you laugh. Can you imagine saying that now to a kid now? My teacher yeah. used to smoke yeah. fucking tabs whilst he was teaching the lesson. And that's that's the school I went to. It, it stopped. and then, But he still smoked in the school corridors. We all smoked, you know, break time at school, at, at like 11 o'clock. There'd be like 200 kids all legging it up the path to, you know, to get out of sight of the school. Smoking, <laughs> having a cig, talking about whatever, you know, football or, or um, music, um, and then going back to class. And, and I, it was, I suppose, um, the only education I got was how to survive. Right. Right, I'm going to just pause a wee second, just because... Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we're, we're talking, I started secondary school in 1979, right? And um, so all that stuff that I spoke about had happened prior to that or during that time. And, you know, the world was, well, I say the world was a very different place, but, it, you know, currently it feels like parts of the world want to go back to that time. You know, we, I was a member of CND when I was 12. Right. Because we, we were, we my friends and I were fighting that we were all going to get nuked. You know, the, the music that I listened to, you know, the jam in particular and the style council, you know, was heavily politicised. Mm -hmm. So although obviously we didn't have the internet and computers, we had the, the NME and whatever, you know, um, was written on the back of a jam single or a style council single or, or whatever, you know, um, Joe Strummer was talking about in print, in, in the music press. That's where I got my information from. And yeah. um, That's the thing as well, with, with stuff like that, I, I think you kind of do, take more, you take more interest in your your heroes at that point, like your, the people that you yeah. look up to. You're, you're going you're gonna to take on what they say better than you are a guy on the news. For sure. So, so on, on the... You know, on the sleeve of the Jam album, sound effects, on the inside of the back, there's, there's a, a quote by the poet Shelley, you know, Rise Like Lions, it's, it's a poem by Shelley. I remember reading it thinking, they haven't fucking shown me this in school. We're reading some bollocks about fucking around, the, you know, whatever. <laughs> so just something that made no sense to me that was written three and, you know, but so I remember looking on the album I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go and check that out and go into the library at school and get in a book of poetry by Shelley. And 
what they, um, you know, everything I, everything I wore was informed by, you know, the posters on my wall, really. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's how it should be. I think, when you're, yeah. When you're Thankfully, I took my fashion hints from from pop stars and not football players. <laughs> exactly. You can't have a mullet. Yeah, exactly. I'd have had one of them Craig Johnson sort of curly perms or something or a fucking muzzy, but as soon as I could. <laughs> <laughs> An Ian Rush moustache, yeah. <laughs> so what, what were your ambitions then? Obviously, if, if you were struggling with school and things like that, what, what, what was your hopes to to be growing up? I didn't have any. Just Martin, I, I mean, as, as tragic as that sounds... I remember sitting in a careers advice lecture or whatever at school and they said, what, what, what do you want to be? And I said, I just want to get out of here, mate. I just want to leave here. I don't, you know, I just want to go away. I had none. I, um, I've, I've just finished writing a song um, about that period of my life and I've never written a song about that period of my life I don't know why it's taken me this long but it has and, and there's a line in it where I've, I've written and they never gave us anything or nothing we could use they made a bonfire of our dreams and then they lit the fuse that's 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 really where I was at you know I was angry traumatised I didn't know any, you know I, I, I knew the anger I understood the anger that, but words like traumatized weren't in my vocabulary and, and and you know unfortunately one of the you know one of the um mo kind of things of, of pedophilia and, and abuse is that you know your guilt and shame is heaped upon the child to put the fact you couldn't talk to anybody about this you know what i mean it was all a secret yeah I was like a 15-year-old kid with a load of really dark secrets and a lot of shame, none of which was my fault. On top of the trauma of losing my dad, who was my hero, you know. My old man, if he was alive today, um, he had me when he was quite, you know, relatively late in life. He was born in 1922, so he'd be 100 this year. He'd be 100 next month, in fact, March the 20th. And he, he was a pilot during the Second World War, so... He was a hero, you know, I mean, he is our hero, you know, not just my hero, I'd say this all the time, those young men, yeah. you know, much the same as the young men that are fucking dying in Ukraine now, they have no choice about it, you know, conscripts or whatever, or they signed up. So he was my hero. So losing him, aged 11, um, created a huge trauma and a, and a huge sadness. And of course, to then be subjected to the kind of stuff that happened at school, when I discovered alcohol, cigarettes, and other drugs, it was a fucking relief, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't think I need to explain that. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if people are still listening, and that you could probably you see why those things, you know, you say, did I have an ambition? I didn't know it. My ambition was to not feel how I felt, you know, was to change how I felt by whatever means necessary. So could I always feel the need to... Okay. I always feel the need to qualify this early on as well, because um, the other thing in my life at that time and to this day that gave me hope was Liverpool Football Club. Now, whilst the people are going, wait a minute, he sounds like a cockney. <laughs> What's he doing supporting them? About three months after my dad died, my mum, who was originally from Coventry, which was where I was in school, had a cousin and, and he took me to a game of football. 
He took me to see Coventry City uh, at the old Highfield Road against Liverpool. And he was a season ticket holder for Cov City. And I'd never been to a game before. My dad hadn't taken me. He, he passed away. So I, I kind of followed football a little bit from a distance, but I wasn't. I didn't support anybody. My dad never supported anybody. He was a cricket man, really. So I go to this game with this relative who I'd met him. That's the only time I ever met him. I never saw him again. Um, and Coventry City win the game 1-0. And he turns to me and he's like, so that's it, you're a sky blue now. And I remember this like it was yesterday. It was January 1980, so a fucking long time ago. I remember looking at the away end and that was in the days when Liverpool would, and other clubs would routinely take 10,000 fans away to an away game. You know, you just jib it in. And it was just a sea of red and white and flags and people singing songs and even though the game was lost. And I just went, I want a bit of that. I want a bit of that. That was it. I just fell in. I fell in love with with Liverpool Football Club. So you know that was it. You can't help who you fall in love with, right? And um, yeah. And as soon as yeah. I was old enough, and as soon as I'd left home and moved, ran away to London, I started to go and watch them in, in the eighties in London at away games, and and I go and watch them to this day, and and it's just another thing in my life that. You know, um, back then, that that was like every Saturday, at, you know, when the full-time scores were like, yes, it was a victory. You know, there was something, something good happened. It was ca- almost guaranteed. Liverpool 7, Man United 0, you know, um, or whatever. Um, so those things started to run in tandem. So I had no ambitions, but I had music and I had football. And, um, what what do you need? Well, precisely. <laughs> Particularly when you've got the Liverpool team of the early 80s. And, and then, you know, after the, the jam split and, and I struggled with the style council for a little while. I kind of, it was a bit of a swerve from Weller, but, mm-hmm. you know, now I kind of get it in a way. In fact, I was playing Head Start for Happiness this morning and as I was walking my dog in my earphones and I was grinning like a fucking idiot. You know, I mean, it's like, what's a fucking song? Yeah. You know, yeah. uplifting I, and joyful. I'm pretty much the same with that because obviously I'm about, I, I'm early 40s, so I'm a bit younger than you. I got into the jam when I was at school and my sister would have been listening to Style Council, but I, I didn't like any 80s music back then. And yeah. it's maybe in the last, the last um, 10 years that I've got into the Style Council. And hmm. once you get it, you do get it, didn't you? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I see, not just him, I mean, but, you know, artists that, challenge their audience i mean the, the, you know we, we're going to talk about heroes later on and he's on my list <laughs> but i haven't decided whether i'm going to invite him over tea yet because there's someone else that's on the list it's, it's, it's a toss-up but say what you like about paul weller is that he's he's constantly tried to do something different yeah you know yeah. he could have he could have stayed with the jam they were you know they slayed all that was in front of them they were number one number one number one they, you know and he didn't and um that that's inspiring, I think. At the time, it wasn't inspiring. At the time, it was devastating. Yeah. But again... This is the thing as well, because he was a young boy as well. And he 24. Had Split the jam, 24, I think it was. Crazy. Yeah. He had 24. to see that it was time to change. Yeah. Every day else was heartbroken, but he knew he knew that yeah. he had to change yeah. and move on. Well, a man of integrity, you know. Anyway... <laughs> so here we are it's 1984 what happens next I leave school 
So what happened then? Were, were you, at this point, were you playing in bands or anything like that? Was there any? No, no I, um, you know, when you ask me what were my ambitions, and I say I had none, I, I, I had none. I had no ambitions. I had no belief in myself um, to really do anything. I think that had been stripped away from me. You know, um, there was no guiding hand. There was no, I, I have a very distant relationship from, from my own mother, unfortunately. Um, God bless her. Um, I had no one saying, you might want to do this. Uh, you know, my mum had remarried and I had a, an authoritarian stepdad who was like, you should join the army. And I was like, all right then, I fucking join the army. Um, and I and I went and almost almost joined the army and um, would have joined the army had I not on the train to the selection weekend at Sutton Coldfield decided to take loads of speed and drink about twenty cans of Stella, and uh, got halfway to Sutton Coldfield and just had a moment of clarity and went, what the fuck am I doing? I don't, I don't want to join the army. So say what you like about Stella and amphetamine. Sometimes they do actually kind of help you make a proper decision. Um, I was I was lost, Martin. You know the truth is I was I was a lost young man. I didn't want to stay in Western Supermare. I ran away to London um, when I was seventeen. Literally just packed a bag, got on a train, popped up in Soho, and. and Again, I, you know, I, I remember standing on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and I think Thrift Street or Greek Street in the heart of Soho. Again, off my tits on speed. You know, just got off a train from this little parochial seaside town where nothing was ever going to happen. And, and, and looking at what was going on in Soho in London in 1986 and thinking, this is fucking amazing. You know, this is amazing. There's this more more stuff's going to happen in the next five minutes here than in yeah. the next 50 years where I come from. I knew that intuitively. It wasn't like an intellectual thing. It was like, maybe it was the speed. I don't know. But um, so, yeah, I, I came to London and what did I do? I, I just fucking took drugs and drank. Right. Where were you staying? Were you sleeping rough? Or? So I did a bit of rough sleeping, not for very long, a few weeks on and off hostels and whatever and then I ended up um, in Kilburn in North London in the kind of Irish community up there which is a great place to drink you know <laughs> I remember sitting in a pub called the Union in Kilburn with, with my flatmate and um, you know it was during the troubles and, and they were still doing collections for the cause you know people would come around with buckets I didn't have a clue what the fucking cause was that's how naive I was. <laughs> this, this guy passing the bucket, he put money in for the cause, and I just went, I'm on a dole, mate. Not really fucking... <laughs> so we left the pub, you know. Um, my mate was like, we're leaving the pub. But, you know, this was all... I don't know. Even the dole office in the 80s was an adventure. Going to sign on every couple of weeks in Kilburn in, in, in the mid-late 80s. With fucking, because it was... You'd walk in and it was it was like a, a scene out of a film, you know. There were just, there were just all sorts of people in there, yeah, fucking pissing on the stairs, drinking, you know, fucking smoking spliffs, whatever. You know, imagine working there in the eighties, you know, like sat behind a bulletproof piece of glass with someone 
screaming at you all day. Where's my fucking money? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it was mad. It was crazy. But then, um, kind of out of nowhere, um, I, I had what got me called a bit of a touch, and I got five hundred quid from somewhere, else, which in nineteen eighty six was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money, actually. Um, and I bought a one way ticket to to New York, and I flew to America. Just literally, I got this money, and, and forty eight hours later, I'd made this decision that. Um, I was going to go to America and see what that was all about. Um, do, you, do you remember remember Rick Mail's first comedy character, Kevin Turvey? Do you remember that off the telly? Check it out afterwards. You like it. So Kevin, so Rick Mail, God bless him. And I, I'm thinking about him because today would have been his birthday. Right. Um, one of his first comedy characters was this character called Kevin Turvey. He was like a guy from the Midlands. This sort of he was a bit like Rick from the Young Ones, really, but with a brummy accent and. Yeah. Kevin Turvey used to investigate stuff. So in a very, Kev I mean, some people listening to this might know what I'm talking about, but anyway, so in a very Kevin Turvey kind of way, my 17-year-old brain was like, I'm going to go and investigate America on a one-way ticket with no money, really. Um, and that's what I did. Wow. And was that, was, um, was that informed by Stale and Speed? Yeah, totally. Everything was. Yeah, <laughs> Everything at that time was, was you know, as a result of, of you know, the first thing I'd do in the morning was skin up and make a joint and, um, and drink something and um, get myself together and then make a series of bad decisions. that <laughs> <laughs> never seemed that bad because, you know, um, so I ended up, um, I ended up on the West Coast in Los Angeles in, in October 86 and I was there um, for nearly two years on and off and um, all those sort of crazy decisions, adolescent decisions that we all make not all maybe <laughs> that, that a lot of us make when we're young um, got sort of turned up a notch or two because I'm in LA you know and it's just like it's Los Angeles and so you know the drugs got diff were different the consequences are different. People have got fucking guns. Who knew? You know what I mean? People, I didn't fucking know. I really generally didn't know that a lot of people that were out and about at three o'clock in the morning in my neighbourhood in Venice Beach in Los Angeles in 1986 were out of their mind on crack and had a gun. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I soon, but I soon found out. <laughs> so you get into some scrapes there then? I was put in jail four times for like long weekends, I think a week and, and because, you know, the, the sort of stuff that, that in Kilburn, you wouldn't have got put in jail, you know, like in the Nick for, you might've been like given a slap by the copper and whatever, but you wouldn't have been arrested for it. But they fucking love arresting people in America, don't they? It's like, it's a, it's a revenue stream for them. So, and, and I got involved with, with, with crack cocaine, um, which, as anyone with half a brain will tell you, is is not a good idea and never has a happy ending. No. And and so I had two years of that over there, um, and and just more more drugs, Martin. You know, lots of really strong acid and and a lot of drinking and crack and normal normal cocaine and um, you know, guess what? It didn't end well and. Um, I got shot at once, twice. Um, 
twice, I think. I got put in the jail a few times um, and eventually, thank God, um, I, I managed to leave, really. I, you know, the last few months I was there, I just, I sold whatever possessions I'd accumulated and I, and I got on a plane and I went back to Western Supermare because I didn't have anywhere else to go to my mum's because, you know, ultimately, I guess, you know, that's what you do. And I remember going to see the um, the family. I said a family doctor. It sounded like it was our the doc doctor that I was registered with. And just being so depressed. I mean, I was depressed because I'd been on a sort of two year drugs bender. Mm -hmm. I was depressed mm -hmm. because my dreams of of whatever. I was thought I was doing in LA hadn't worked out. I did a bit of acting and a bit of extra work and I was in a few films and all that sort of stuff. I was in the naked gun. Blink and you miss me. But um and it was all done completely illegally, by the way. <laughs> it was just and there was loads of lads over there. So the World Cup was in Mexico you know, in eighty six. So there was loads of lads from England there, there was loads of Scottish lads there, and, and there were lots of people that had fled Thatcher's Britain. You know, lots of lads from up north, loads of Scousers and Manx and, and Glaswegians. And it was kind of like being an Alf Wiedersehen pet, but in LA, you know, with a better climate, everyone was working on building sites. And it was, you know what, I don't want to, it was fucking great. Most of it was great. It was, a, it was a crazy couple of years. You know, it wasn't just me sat there smoking crack for two years. That was a bit of it. But there was, it was life changing in a way is that. I started to realise, you know, um, some truths about the world and, and, and to understand that the term we use now is white privilege. But I had that just because I was white, you know, when I consider what I was up to. Mm -hmm. And every time I got put in the jail, it was full of black people who'd done the same thing and they weren't going anywhere. You know, they were just... So it was. It was part. It was. How did like see with that there? What was it like? Was did you need to pay bail to get out of that? Yeah, I, I had someone twice come and bail me out. Um, what really <coughs> it was it? There was this one incident where I, I got nicked on a, on a Friday afternoon. I was in a stolen car that I I, I knew it was stolen. I bought it off someone, but I, you know, I, and I got nicked with an ounce of pot under the front seat in a stolen car on a Friday afternoon, and that's so you just. You put in the in the they call it the tank in LA, you know, for the weekend. So it's like every obviously every police set station has its own prison cells. And I got thrown in there, and they're like, "We'll deal with you next week in court, you know, if, unless you can get bail." And I know no one's going to give bail to me. It's one of the most eye-opening things that that I have, I've ever seen to this day. So I get put in the in the prison cell, and it's about fifty foot long and about twenty foot wide, and there's a row of telephones on the wall. Mm -hmm. on one wall and on the other wall there's a row of toilets cubicles but with no door so you've got your crips down one end their gang bloods in the other corner the mexicans in another corner a couple of people that i couldn't tell what race they were they were so fucked from drugs you know i don't know whether they were white or black or you know they were just fucking lying on the floor looking like they were half dead and me this sort of like 19 year old fucking white kid from See, Western Superman. That's, that's a dodgy situation at the end. How the fuck did this happen? You know, not, I mean, generally, how did, I mean, I know now what happened, it happened because I was fucking in this stolen car trying to buy drugs, but 
Anyway, I got approached by this big fella comes kind of trotting over and I just, he just spoke to me. They take everything off you apart from your money and they take your laces out your shoes so you can't strangle yourself or anyone else, anything that could be a weapon. But you could keep your cigarettes and your money. It was really bizarre. Anyway, this fella comes up to me and, and once he figures out that I'm English and I'm not like the enemy, I'm not like white America, he's like, you need to come meet my buddies, man, hang with me. So I just spent the whole weekend getting stoned in this fucking prison cell with these black dudes that just took, looked after me. They're like, you've got to be with somebody in here. You can't be a lone operator, dude. You know, do you, do you have black folk? They didn't use that word, but I won't use the word. But, you know, do you have black people in England? And I'm like, yeah, of course, you know. And um, it, it was just another, another learning curve. I mean, not one that I'd wish anyone else to to experience but yeah you know yeah. start to see how the world works a little bit um and um yeah they 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 got me bail and, and um and i and i skipped bail you know I, I left america basically i'm still banned to this day um but anyway there's better there's there's other places to go so all this stuff martin was all soundtracked still you know by music mm -hmm. you know, i was, was going to see bands um, I mean, here's one that probably you wouldn't expect, but I, I went to see the Grateful Dead a couple of times. Right. Just because my mate had a ticket. I was like, they're like some hippie band from the 60s, right? I mean, it was amazing. It's incredible. They played for like three hours. I mean, two hours of that was a guitar solo, but, but, there, <laughs> but there was just a load of people all taking. And the reason I've mentioned that is because it kind of feeds into what happens next, actually. So... About a month before I left California or left America, I go and see the Grateful Dead at Long Beach Arena. And I don't know, there's 20,000 people there. And they're all taking psychedelic drugs. People are selling this thing called ecstasy, which I was like, I've never heard of that. I don't know. This is 1988, by the way, in LA. Um, people are taking a lot of acid, smoking a lot of weed, all sorts of weird stuff, doing nitrous blooms and everything. And the gig's like three hours long. And then the party in the car park, after the show goes on all night. Right. And uh, I remember thinking, this is amazing. This is like a, you know, I've never seen anything like this. People staying up all night listening to strange music. <laughs> sounded strange to me. Taking loads of drugs. How bizarre. Wow. You know, I'm really going to miss that when I leave California. And of course, I come back to England and it's 1988 and becomes 1989 and what happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um I, I i always thought that it's this is started off in europe i thought they no no alexander shulgin was a californian i mean he's still alive you know he was in the way that timothy leary i suppose in the 60s was the poster boy for lsd mm -hmm. he was um I, I believe someone can tweet me and tell me I'm wrong, synthesized in, in America by this guy called Shulgin. And, you know, like all other drugs like that, once the government decided they didn't have much use for it, you know, it went underground and it was still legal for a long time in America. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't partake there, but, um, but 18 months later, I'm back in, in England and I'm back in London and then I'm at Glastonbury. And, um, and then I meet Bez from the Happy Mondays. So you can get you can guess what happened next, maybe. <laughs> so, um, what happened next? 
<laughs> well, funny you should ask. <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd kind of, um, I'd moved to London. I'd, I'd spent a few months in, in Western Supermare long enough to just kind of realise that, you know, what I already knew that I didn't want to stay there. And, and um, I came back to London and um, I'd, I'd been to Glastonbury for the first time in 86. Uh, that was a life-changing moment for sure. One of the best gigs I've ever seen in my life to this day. Um, and where I got the title of my book from um, Too High, Too Far, Too Soon from the Waterboy song, The Hole of the Moon. Mm -hmm. um, I would urge anybody who likes music with more soul than you can shake a fucking soulful stick at and passion and energy to go on YouTube and type in Waterboys Glastonbury 1986. It is one of the most remarkable concerts by any band that has ever existed, ever. And I know that's a ridiculous thing to say, but it is. It was. And, uh, and, and it, it was actually recorded by by um, Radio 1 or Radio 2 in concert. So it's a really good quality recording you can listen to on YouTube. It's a remarkable gig. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the first time in my life, so I was like 17, 18 and 86. This was before I'd gone to America. Um, but I started to think, I'd quite like to do something like that, you know. Like everyone does, what it'd be great being a rock star, wouldn't it? <laughs> Fucking lovely. You get anyway. A few years later, I was back there in. I thought, do you know what was it? Ninety one, ninety. I don't know. Anyway, I I got the job working at Glastonbury. I say work. I use the term loosely, um, but I, it had given me a, an access all areas pass. And, and essentially, what happened was I met Bez from the Happy Mondays, who were. Not headlining, but they were certainly high up the bill that year. So maybe it was 91, actually, I don't know. Um, and um, the Happy Mondays tour bus was um, like a scene that I... <laughs> he took me on his tour bus, and I'd kind of never seen anything like it, to be honest with you. It was fucking carnage in there. And they had arrived, um, and they bought... The Mondays had brought their own laminating, like pass laminating machine with them. So all their mates, as soon as, soon as they got their passes, they just photocopied them and laminated them. And they were, so it was just loads of manx back, backstage selling pills, basically. Um, and it was, Bez, had, Bez said to me, listen, we, can you, can you get us, basically he was asking for something that, that someone else needed that you, how can I put it? You wouldn't mention it in polite conversation. Yeah, it was a substance yeah. that that is has got a stigma to it that you know you just don't talk about it. And um, someone within their group <laughs> needed some. How about that? And I knew where I could get it, so I took Bez off to the other side of the Glastonbury Festival. On, on, I had a motorbike which I'd hired off someone, and um, I drove them up there and sorted all that out for him and them and then in return they gave me a bag of pills and went go and sell them if you want and I did and um, that that was the first time really um, I had got engaged in doing that I won't say for a living because it wasn't for a living you know but but um, I knew someone that had 
some substances and I knew lots of people that wanted those substances and I was a one-man drug dustbin so I figured my stupid brain went well if I get those people what that person's got I can get a bit for myself and it's happy days I genuinely never on my daughter's life never thought it was some scheme to make money never saw it like that no yeah I think you're just at that point I you're just happy to, to have enough for yourself aren't you that that's what it is. it's it's no well, it's I was fairly. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can make that decision if making money. No, I think you have to be quite a ruthless individual to 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 do that. You know, to yeah. so you can't be. If you take drugs yourself and think you're going to make money selling drugs, then you're fucking <laughs> like I did <laughs> at some point. You're stupid. You know, it's not going to happen. But um, but you know, and, and also, I was quite evangelical about ecstasy you know like a lot of us were at the time because i saw no no harm in it i thought it was a remarkable substance that you know if it, if it can stop football hooligans from slapping fuck out of each other on a saturday then then do you know what I mean? but it did do that yeah i'm not saying i'm not saying that old firm games were a big love fest and they were all like cuddling each other on the halfway line but no definitely but, not but but most other games i but, but you know what I mean? It certainly changed stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I and I was caught up in it like hundreds of thousands, millions of people were at that time. Yeah. So from Bez, then, um, what happened for there? That you were going to Glastonbury every year, weren't you? You'd, you'd, uh, yeah. This is so I, I, I made... Stall. I made um I made a bit of an impression, you know, that year in particular. Uh-huh. I think, you know, just and it wasn't, I it wasn't, I didn't ever had a plan. I still hadn't, you know, if you'd have asked me then, what you asked me ten minutes ago, you know, what's your ambition? I didn't have one. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. You know, I don't know. I just was like, well, I'll just do this for a bit, and and I get to see loads of bands. And I get to meet people that I found interesting. And I, you know, I lived in London and, and you know, I, I got a mobile phone <laughs> and, and, and people would ring me up and go, can you, can you get this? And we're going to go and see this gig and do you want to come and do you want to be on the guest list and do, do, do. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was, it, I was, we were kind of just on the cusp of, you know, I saw Nirvana. I, I got to meet Kurt Cobain. Um, and have an evening with him, you know, and um, he was really fucking miserable, <laughs> by the way, in case anyone was thinking, what was he like? He was a heroin addict, you know, and, and by that point, so was I, by the way. Um, that's why we hung out for an evening. Um, but the, 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 the way I saw the world at that point, we're just on the cusp of, you know, some band from Manchester were about to happen. And um, completely by accident and not at all by design, I was, I suppose, in the right place at the right time to to see that right. from, from up close. And so I was at the Water Rats in mm-hmm. King's Cross when Oasis played their first ever gig in London. And and how? Why were you there? Did, were you tapped off? Did somebody say come? Yeah, because 
because the promoter rang me up and went, look, I've got a band that's driving me mad for a bit of thing. Do you want to come down and sort it out? And I just remember thinking, I can't be asked, really. You know, and he was like, please, honestly. They'd... And I'd heard about them. I think I'd fade away on a cassette that had been released on a cassette. I'd heard a little bit about them. And, you know, I mean, every week, if you read the NME or the Melody Maker or Sounds or mm-hmm. whatever, there was hundreds of music publications back then. You know, the next big thing, the next bit. So Suede were going to be the next big thing a few years. Nirvana had become the next big thing uh-huh. already. And, um, and I went to the show thinking, if I had a pound for every time I'd gone to see a band that was going to be the next big thing, I wouldn't have had to sell drugs. You know? <laughs> I'd be fucking minted. But um, they came on stage and uh, I just stood there rooted to the spot and I couldn't take my eyes off off Liam, really, because you couldn't, you know. I wasn't sure whether he was going to sing or get off stage and start punching people. You know, it was there was a yeah an, yeah. an energy to it um, that I'd not really witnessed before. Mm-hmm. I'd seen the Stone mm-hmm. Roses towards the end of the eighties. That was a different thing, and and I'd only seen them a couple of times, and, and they were a fucking terrible live band. Unfortunately, they weren't, you know, I mean, I, I at the time I didn't whatever but this was something else this was like right this is happening right now this band i'm looking at now his oasis is happening right now right in f- 10 feet from me you know it's like i'm right there the water rats hold that room and where they played i've played there loads of times myself holds 200 people it was ram it was sweaty as you know and i just remember thinking this this is our rolling stones and our beatles and where do i sign up you know yeah I mean, it was fascinating at the start, just his attitude, you know what I mean? And it was, as you say, you, you didn't know what he was going to do. I think that's the unpredictability of the, the band in general just made it so captivating for people. There was nothing um, fabricated about it, do you know what I mean? It was, it was yeah. real. It was a very real thing. You know, we live in an age... I'm going to sound like an old man now, where it's like, you know, I despair. <laughs> Fucking what they call rock bands at the moment. This is nothing. Anyway, don't get me started. But, you know, I was 24. I was the right age. I was a couple of years older than him, a year younger than Noel. You know, I had a decent pair of trainers on my feet and a, a reasonable haircut. And, uh, and, you know, an Adidas fucking tracky. And um, I was like, right, let's go. You know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's join this. And, um, so I met them and, and, you know, phone numbers were exchanged and thus began a couple of years of my life where I spent a bit of time with them. Right. And for what, I mean, for what I hear, you were kind of, the association with Oasis was basically the water rats up to around Nebworth. So yeah. what was so the... I saw all the good you? stuff. <laughs> so, so what was going on then? Were you... With them, you weren't really travelling with them all the time. Were you hooking up? No, we did a, did a bit of travelling. So I introduced them at the first Tea in the Park festival at Strathclyde. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. That's, yeah. that's like five minutes away from me. Like, yeah. So the first Tea in the Park was at Strathclyde County Park, and they were playing in the tent on the Saturday afternoon. Uh-huh. I think the middle of the, they'd obviously been booked months previously. But yeah. things are moving yeah. so fast at that point. So that tent 
but I don't know whether it's supposed to hold 5,000 people, but there was 10. And if it was supposed to hold 10, there was 20. What I'm saying is it was fucking heaving, man. Never seen anything like it. You know, the energy levels were through the sky. We were all absolutely wankered on, you know, various bits and pieces. And um, Marcus Russell, who was Oasis's manager, um, said just before they went on, do you want to go and introduce them? You know, get the crowd going a little bit. I mean, the crowd didn't need any geeing up, trust me. <laughs> Fucking bang up for it. There were footballs flying around and people climbing up the fucking tent poles and yeah, it was yeah. it was truly a remarkable gig you know the the the, 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 the energy between audience and band and again yeah. you know i mean we were all on a lot of drugs but um it, you could almost you could touch it yeah it was like fluid you know it was like the, we all just became this big thing of of just i don't know energy is there any footage of that? You know, there's a dreadfully bad audio of. I've looked for audio for 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 um on YouTube for that Tea in the Park festival. There's virtually nothing. Right. I don't know why it wasn't filmed. I don't think anyone filmed them. Um, there's a really really bad audio recording of Oasis doing that show, and if you listen carefully right at the start, you can hear me going. The greatest rock and roll band in the world, <laughs> Oasis, and um, and they come on and and they I think they started with Shaker Maker, and I wouldn't get off the stage. Uh, Ian was like tapping me on the shoulder, going, "You need to fucking get off the stage, mate," because I was just there, just fucking going, "Come on!" Anyway, I've got a new club of that dropping. So, um, so that was yeah, and. and and so I saw quite a lot of gigs in that couple of years, hanging around with them. I wasn't, you know, I saw them at the Hacienda. I saw them at the Leeds Irish Centre on that tour when, when at Newcastle, something I was in the crowd had been a fight. I saw the hotels getting rearranged. You know, I went for a minibus to something a bit more grand than that. But by the time Nebworth came around, um, I sort of metaphorically shot myself in my foot a little bit because it was it was common knowledge that the cat in the hat, because that was my nom de plume, <laughs> um, was a junkie, heroin addict. And, you know, that's not really allowed in the music business. You're not allowed to be one of them. You can be the world's most boring cocaine addict and you know talk bollocks for days at a time without going to bed and no one will bat an eyelid you can drink yourself into you know liver cirrhosis and that's fine as well but but if you if you go near the brown stuff um, unless you're making someone a lot of money of course yeah. then um, yeah. you become persona non grata really quickly so well you, well you kind of then um kept at arm's length for that for that point about uh, so going to ne Nebworth was was on my birthday, August the tenth. The two nights they two nights they did, and I went to the f first one. I think on my birthday, and I sort of by that point, I'd gone from being able to ring up Maggie, who was their tour manager, or, or Liam even, and go put me on the list to having to sort of ring up other people 
and go any chance of being your plus one. And I'd sort of scrape myself onto a, a guest list. Mm-hmm. And I went up there with the full intention of, you know, serving up bits and pieces, making a few quid, seeing the gig. And, um, you know, and I had a fucking raging heroin habit. And by the time I'd got myself in and backstage and into the, there was like the VIP bit, the VVIP bit, the VVVR, you know, the, there were like people going to see them. And I'm thinking, what? you're here for a photo opportunity, you lot. You don't give a fuck about this band. This is not, the, it's not the band of the people anymore. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm bitter, right? But I generally think I saw the best two years of it, personally. Yeah. The Water Rats to Nebworth definitely maybe is my favourite Oasis album. It's the only one that I still listen to um, from time to time. And I feel really fortunate to have been around it to us. No, not, not in any big way, but I saw more than most, you know what I mean? Um, and then by Nebworth, it was like, oh, look, there's Tyra Palmer Tompkinson. She's on the gate. It's like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know? And, um, and I think Noel Gallagher actually said we should have just called it a day then. That would have yeah. been it. That would be a perfect ending for Oasis, you know, to do that because what happened? It's like spinal tapping. It's gone to eleven. What happens after that? Yeah, I, I think they got to a point where they, they they just didn't know how to end it. Yeah, and it, then it just became better and twisted in arguments all the time. So, so there was us talking about Weller, you know, a few minutes ago, and and him having the the integrity and the foresight to call it a day when they were the biggest band in in the country. The Jam could have played five nights at Nebworth. In yeah. 1982, yeah. you know what I mean? Probably. Um, and it just anyway, so they trundled on doing their thing, going, you know, in the ascendant, getting bigger and bigger. And and I ended up um, a homeless heroin addict living in hostels and being on the street and um, being a deeply unpleasant junkie for the next 10 years. Right. Well, I'm just, I mean, yeah. So, obviously, the Oasis kind of times came to an end and you see you descended into a cycle for the next 10 years. But was there still some moments in music as well? I've, I've seen a story with uh, Weller, with Paul Weller, who sold him a bag of drugs. Well, that was that was before... That was pre-Nebworth. Um, I mean, I, it, it's a convenient sort of um, pivot point in my life, Nebworth. You know what I mean? Like it, kind of, it changed a lot of things for a lot of people. It certainly changed things for Oasis, you know. But So I would say that prior to that, 96, right, I, I was just kind of hanging on. You know, I was, I was a drug addict who had bits of money coming in you know in in, because of what i was doing um but after that things unraveled um and um like i say within by the end of 96 i'd been to my first detox been to my first rehab i I, you know neither of them had, had made the slightest bit of difference and the next 10 years from from 96 to 2006 there was seven 
Seven, yes, yeah, seven residential rehabs, 14 inpatient detoxes, trying to get off heroin, crack. Um, I seem to, you know, the phone stops ringing. Once, once the, the word is out that this guy's a junkie, surprise, surprise. None of those people that used to ring me all the time were my friends. I knew that. I knew that then. I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to believe that people liked me, but without sort of over pathologizing and self-diagnosing myself, I didn't really like myself very much. Right. And the, the life of a, a heroin addict, you know, um, of my type, as in someone that fucking, you know, cannot stop ever and will inject fucking anything that you can get in a spoon at any time of day you know is is not pleasant it's not pleasant for them and it's equally not as pleasant for anyone that cares about that person my sister um any girlfriends that i'd had or close friends um kind of got to a point where they all just had to walk away you know, every time I go into a detox and promising that's it, I'm done with that shit, you know, um, people get a little bit of hope. And then, you know, within days, sometimes hours, facts of completing another detox or another rehab, I'd be back in the pub or the off license and, and the whole thing would start all over again. Mm -hmm. And um, those were 10 long years, right? You know. 96 to 2006 with 10 fucking horrible years for all concerns. And, and what, I, what I mean is, is, you know, my family, my small, my sister, my mum, my probably with maternal instinct, knew that things weren't right. I'd, I'd like to think, or I thought at the time that I kept the truth hidden from her because I never saw her. But since becoming a parent myself, um, you know, I know when my daughter isn't great, when things aren't right. She's a teenager now, you know. I mean, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. She's actually in good shape on all levels. But, you know, there's an in there's a instinctive thing. Uh -huh. um, anyway, so that 10 years um, was, was fucking horrible. Yeah. A long 10 years. Sure. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't, I guess people would say, hang on, you went to rehab seven times, so therefore rehab doesn't work, you know, or you went detox. Those things do work, but they only work if the individual is willing to let go of their old ways of thinking and behaving. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a, an expression which, it's a bit of a clumsy expression, but, you know, there's one thing that has to change, and that's probably everything. In my case, that was kind of true i'm not saying it's the same for everybody but but i really had to find a way a different way to 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 think and behave and live and those 10 years was a a long slow painful process of eventually reaching a point in 2006 where i kind of run out of bullshit my own bullshit and was willing to listen to other people, other addicts, essentially, who were in recovery, who had managed to stay clean for, 
you know, a period of time. Okay. And, and for me to kind of go, I'm not actually different from them people. They might have used different drugs. They might have used them in a different decade. Um, but if I put the timeline to one side and the substances to one side and actually listen to how people talk about themselves and how they think, how they think about themselves and how they think about the world around them, then everything kind of lit up like a Christmas tree all of a sudden. It's like, fuck, I'm an addict. And um, there are various ways out of addiction and different things work for different people. Um, you know, what probably was only ever going to work for me was, was reaching a point where I accepted that I'd have to be abstinent from all mood altering substances, including alcohol. Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of denial around my alcohol use. I was like, no, I'm a heroin addict. Booze has got nothing to do with it, which is the biggest bunch of bullshit <laughs> I, I told anyone in my life. And I spoke a lot of it, but, but that was it. That that fucking lying to myself about alcohol was, I laugh at it now, but it was tragic. Yeah. Well, that's just a thing because the alcohol, the minute you get back the alcohol in your system, then that's all right about I'm going to go and get that drug, or I'm going to go and get that drug, and it's kind of they kind of go hand in hand, really. Yeah, my thinking just changes. You know, yeah. I, I, being coming out of a, yet another rehab or another detox, clean, sober. I'm like, right, okay, I've I've got, I've written down quite a lot of evidence here of what happens when I start using, and I'm just going to try and believe that now, and and kind of, yeah, and then you know, I'd. Like I say, sometimes within a few hours, sometimes it would take a few months. Eventually, I'd, I'd, I'd slide off down the pub and, and I'd, yeah, and yeah. Anyway, like I said, that was a long, fucking painful 10 years and um, nothing good came out of it. A lot of my friends died. Um, I don't know. I don't believe in God. Right? I'm not a religious person. I'm the opposite of that. Um, but I'm also equally like, you know, people believe what they want. It's none of my fucking business. But I don't know how I survived when other people didn't. I don't know who, who writes that script. You know what I mean? I just, I think life is a game of chance. I think we get what we get. I don't think any of us get what we deserve. I don't think we deserve anything. Yeah. You know, I don't think those fucking poor people in, in the Ukraine or deserve that, do they? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, so I, I, I survived. And um, and in 2006, like I said, I, I, I went back to a 12-step fellowship. Um, and I kind of literally, as they say, I kind of had my hands in the air and I went, fucking someone tell me what to do, please. And I was very fortunate that I quite quickly um, got a group of people in my life that, that understood me better than I understood myself at that point, or probably to this day even, actually. Um, and I just kind of did what they did. You know, I, I, people say, what was the difference? You know, in all those previous attempts, because, I mean, this is the important part of my story. But I don't want to sound overly yeah. self kind of important, but, but if you are listening to this, you, not you, because you're listening to it. <laughs> I, you know, if there's any good can come out of the sort of ramshackle nature of my life, is that other people might 
go, well, if he can sort himself out, so can I. Yeah. And, and, I've, and I've had people tell me that over the last, you know, 16, nearly 16 years now I've been clean. Um, I've had people that I've never met who I will never meet who read my book or, you know, came to see the, the stage show when we turned it to a stage show or have come via the music of Hightown Pirates and, and discovered the backstory. And in some way, something in that story that I've told and continue to tell has been useful to them. I mean, that's, that's when I say nothing good came out of that last 10 years, maybe that's what came out of it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the power to help people, the power to, for people to realise that, that there is a way out and there's yeah. redemption for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I mean, I spoke about my mum off mic. My mum's a, a recovering alcoholic. She's not touched a drink in 10 years. Um, okay. That's probably how I did have an argument with her this morning because you know, she can be a bit arse at times. <laughs> uh, but I, I so I, I understand what, a, what the struggle is. You know what I mean? Regardless of alcohol or drugs or whatever, it's a mindset. Well, alcohol is drugs, isn't it? It's just legal drugs, and, and yeah. it kills more people than all the rest of them put together. You know, and, and that's just you know the fucking truth of the matter. There's no two ways about it. You know, um, so. You know, I, I um, when I got clean in, in 2006, I, I, again, by accident, not design, and, I, and I've used that expression a few times, but, you know, like, I, I still don't have a plan. <laughs> you asked me near an hour ago when I was a teenager, what was the plan, what was the ambition? I still don't, you know, I've never had one. I've never had a plan. But, but, but I had one plan in 2006, and that was to stay clean, no matter fucking what no matter what, to do whatever it took. You know, after years of kind of half measures, to, to coin a phrase, um, after years of starting to sort of do some recovery stuff and then deciding that I knew best. And, and uh, uh, 2006 was as pivotal as Nebworth was 10 years earlier or seeing the fucking jam 20-something years earlier or, you know, it was another or the Smiths on top of the Pops, or the Roses, or all these other things that happened in my life, or meeting Bez or whatever. In 2006, I was beaten, you know what I mean? I, I finally gave up trying to do things life my way. And I was open to the idea that other people um, knew what they were talking about when they spoke about recovery and sobriety. And not only did you know, know what they were talking about, but I needed to include those people in my life. And that wasn't a sign of weakness. You know, no one, no one's ever told me that I have to do anything in recovery. Yeah. I was ever put a gun to my head and said, you have to do this. You must believe that you do. You know, there are other people's lived experience. There's a wealth of it, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people all over the world. Um, millions, you know, um, have experience that is useful and valuable to me, and and as mine might be to other people. And um, so I hang around with some of those guys on a regular basis. I think was the, is the way I frame that. 
Um, I, I did a lot of it in 2006. I, I, I went to those places where those people hang out for a, an hour or 90 minutes of a lunchtime or an evening. Mm-hmm. In, uh, and, and, and I did a lot of that. And, and, and it's stood me in good stead. And um, in early recovery, I just wanted to be clean. That was it. You know, I just, the fear of going back to that nightmare existence drove me, you know, um, there was no, there was no bravery involved. There was no faith in anything. It was just fucking fear. And, over, and you know, and over the years, um, what I've got is, is much more than that. And, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that but now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So obviously what sort of stuff were you doing? Um, did you start doing some work and, um, recovery so i did that yes i did it's a, it's a fairly well-trodden path you know I, I i kind of started doing some voluntary work because i thought i knew a little bit about addiction and i thought i might be learning a little bit about recovery and you know i had a a, a fairly long but pathetic criminal record that sort of prohibited me and still does unfortunately from doing other things um because that's the society that we live in. Um, so it's, I had, I had no trade, you know, I'd never learned to do anything useful <laughs> in my fucking life. Um, so I kind of started working in, in um, the treatment industry, because that's what it is. And I did that for nearly six years, you know, in, in sort of formal drug treatment, alcohol treatment. And I went back and worked in the detox that I'd been in 14 times and worked in a couple of rehabs and worked in statutory drug services for Hackney Council where I'd lived for 20 odd years. And um, and I became a parent, you know, my daughter was born in, in 2008. And, you know, I, I got her mum and I, sadly for my daughter got divorced. So I went through divorce, I went through homelessness, I went through you know, having a job but sleeping in my car because that work is so badly paid and I'm financially unmanageable. And blah, blah, blah. I went to more funerals than anyone my age should have gone to, you know, with friends that I've made in recovery that, that died. When my daughter Tabitha was born, we had like a little sort of secular um, welcome to the world gathering. And there were eight people there who were close to m- myself and my I thought it was mum. And four of those people are dead now. So these weren't just people that I knew from the street. These were like people that were very much part of my life that I loved dearly. And they're all dead. And that's fucking horrible, difficult, that grief. Because it taps into all the other grief, you know. But what I've learned over the years um, is that, you know, feelings pass. You know, I, I've heard some of the most profound and useful information in my life um, from the mouths of people in recovery. And whether it was an original thought of theirs or something that they kind of heard and, you know, had their own particular way of telling it. But I've, I've witnessed people do truly remarkable things, by which I mean people who have been completely written off by society as fucking having no hope have stopped using and drinking and stayed stopped for a long period of time. And that in itself is 
truly remarkable. Truly remarkable, mm. you know, that people, are, you know, and um, I don't actually think there is anything more remarkable than that for for a, for a, a hundred percent addict, alcoholic to fucking get clean, to get sober, to sort themselves out, to you know, where possible, make their amends to people and and to restore people's hope and to stop stealing people's peace of mind, and you know, be the parents that they were always supposed to be, or the brother or sister or auntie or uncle or whatever it is. You know, to turn up for life, to get involved, to become productive members of society. That's that's a truly remarkable change. Yeah. I mean, what I find astonishing about it is, uh, like, to the point that you've, you've entered into recovery, it, it kind of feels like it's, it's a tougher life. Like, we all ask, like, you've lost these people and... Um, you were staying in your car and things like that. I, I mean, it must it it's, it must be even more hard to deal with and the the fact that you've no got the escape of the the drugs or the well, alcohol. Well, that's that's the hard bit because all that other stuff happens anyway in life. Do you know what I mean? Just because I I decided that I was going to stop drinking and taking drugs, life doesn't get any less unfair or more fair, you know, it just, life is life, it just happens, you know what I mean, it does, like I said just a minute ago, people, just shit happens, I, I really, you know, this is just me, and, and, and I respect people who have faith, but I don't have any faith in, in, in some benevolent fucking God that's keeping tabs on us and chucking us, you know, oh, he's a good boy, look, I don't believe that, I've not seen it happen, you know. Um, so, you know, what I signed up for was to, process those feelings of loss and sadness and 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 sit with them you know sit with them without fucking pouring something down my neck or sticking something in my arm sit with them until they change Mm. and that's the difficult bit you know but what what i feel i should say now because it's been a bit heavy is i fucking love life man (laughs) i fucking love my life so, I can't yeah. tell you how, when I take the time to just check myself, right, even something as minuscule as at the start of our conversation nearly an hour and a half ago, so if you're still listening, thank you, because <laughs> I've been rattling on for ages, right, but just, so I've discovered a new band, right, my new favourite band, they're called Yard Act, have you, have you checked them out yet? No, how about you? look after this they put an album out in january right i'm obsessed by them absolutely fucking obsessed i think the the guy that sings and writes the lyrics is a genius and i don't use that word lightly um they're they're from leeds they're a four piece they're not 20 years old i mean they're not my age but and um they're a bit of a throwback to I, i don't like the fall i'm not a big fall fan but there's definitely some of that and there's a bit of half man, half biscuit. There's a there's a social commentary. They've got great guitars, and um, and I'm just I've just been listening to the album. I bought it on vinyl every day for like a month. And walking the dog this morning on the beach, I hear something else that I hadn't. You know, when you're just listening to something, you don't hear it all the first time. You, yeah, there's kind of yeah. levels. Another lyric, you just. Um, and the lyric I heard this morning is something about what's the quickest way to reignite two lost souls 
is it therapy or car key or car keys in the bowl? Something. <laughs> I just I was like fucking hell. No, I heard that lyric properly this morning, and I just my face was just lit up with just like oh wow that's fucking brilliant, you know? Yeah. So when I say I love life, it's not I haven't got a guitar-shaped swimming pool here in Margate, you know. Um, I've got an enthusiasm for for the thing that saved my life when I was eleven. I've got the same enthusiasm for it all these years later. But just this morning, got my ticket for Liverpool Man United in April at Anfield. Yeah. You know, I, I can, I've got goose. You know, I'm going to go. I haven't been to many games this season, but I've got a ticket for that sorted. You know, I took my wife. We went to Paris last week. We haven't had a honeymoon. We've been married two and a half years. We haven't been anywhere together mm-hmm. because of you know COVID and whatever. And. Um, because of some work I've done recently, as I was able to say to her, look, I just bought us four days in Paris, you know, and we just walked around and we just walked everywhere. We didn't take a metro or a taxi. And, you know, and, and um, my daughter's great. She's, she's, Tabitha's doing really, really well. And, you know, I have her here at, at school holidays and on weekends. And, and she, I took her to see the Libertines two weeks ago. Right. She's into music now. And, she just gets it, you know. She, she's seen them a couple of times and Peter Doherty has been kind enough to send her some vinyl and, you know, she actually had a game of, of Snakes and Ladders with Peter a few years ago at my house and she was like, he cheats, Daddy. Like, <laughs> 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 you know, but, but, but she's she's got it. She's got, you know, we're gonna, and we're going to go and see Yard Act, this band that I'm banging on about, um, together in Hackney in a couple of weeks, you know, and I'll take her and, and you know, it's simple stuff, really. It's not, you know, it's not like huge, grand stuff. Um, I'm, I'm sitting two two feet away from a guitar that I got last week that I've been, you know, and tonight, so I'm near the end of the story. Right? So for the last five years, I've been writing music under the flag of Hightown Pirates, which has basically been a, an ongoing collection of, of various musicians, you know, two drummers, five different bass players, seven different guitar players, you know, people come and go and it's been a been a wonderful thing to do and two albums and an EP and some standalone singles, which I believe you've listened to some of that stuff. I was listening uh, to that again this morning. Uh, and just some of the some of the, the, the sounds are here for um I mean like the, the second al- the second album is like a hundred percent bang. Um it starts off like the hood. Yeah. Like the hood, don't you? Yeah. The other one. I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's co- he's coming to dinner. He's coming to dinner in a minute. We'll get to him in a minute. I thought so. Um, <laughs> but there's bits of kind of, I thought there was bits of like Bob Dylan in it as well. And there was bits that sounded like Primal Scream. So, so Sunday Sermon is my nod to Like a Hurricane. Mm-hmm. So that song mm-hmm. that's got that kind of hammer and gospel thing, it tells a story. So yeah. I, I, I was listening to, I mean, it's one of my favourite Dylan songs, Story of the Hurricane, and he tells a story. And, you know, so it was my nod to Dylan, absolutely, that kind of, you know, just have some simple chords, just have something going along and tell the story. So, yeah, thank you for that. And and certainly some primal screaming there. And um, I, I guess if, you know, I didn't start recording music really until I was in my late 40s. Mm-hmm. So I've had all this life, experience to sort of soak up 
I mean, I've been in bands all my life, but they never got anywhere because I was a junkie. Do you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll, I'll be this June, end of May, be 16 years clean. I've, I've written and recorded two and a half albums already. Um, I've sort of retired the name High Town Pirates for a little while because um, I'm going to go down a different route with with musicians that are all here in Margate, where I live, um, which I think we might call Death Valley Yacht Club. Yeah, um, which is a good name, I think, a snappy title. Um, and we're having our first get together tonight. Well, I'm going to let you in on a secret, Martin. You're going to you, you're going to be the first person outside of my close friends to, to hear this. So the plan is this, right? For if we do call it Death Valley Yacht Club, whatever. Anyway, so where this goes next musically is that you're a music fan, and I'm going to sound like an arrogant prick now, but I'm going to say it. I believe that I've written songs with the help of other people that are good enough to play Brixton Academy, to play to in front of, I, I think I've got the songs, right? I, I genuinely believe that. I've seen a lot of gigs in my time. I know it's difficult to be objective about your own music, but I think I'm quite good. I'm in a, I'm a bit of a purple patch at the moment. How long it lasts, who knows? But I think I've managed to write some good songs. Uh -huh. And I've always wanted to play Brixton and it's never happened because I've never managed to find an audience for whatever reason. So this new project, um, is called Two Years to Brixton. And what we're going to do, and so I've got a new bunch of musicians and some of their actors as well, and we're going to make a documentary as we go. And we're going to play Brixton Academy within two years. That's, that's brilliant. And the way we're going to go about it is we're going to invite people and we'll launch it all. So you have to watch our social media or my social media in the next month or so. And we're going to invite people to join our club Death Valley Yacht Club. You've got to pay a fiver to join, and that's a deposit for your ticket. Uh huh. In two years. And we're going to document rehearsals, and we're going to release music, and we're going to make little films, and we're going to ask people to invest in it because right now the world seems fucking a really dark place again. You know, the, let's, let's have it right. The last five or six years have been a proper shit show of fucking Brexit and COVID, and now the situation yeah. in, in Ukraine. And, you know, we are, as humans, um, very limited in how we can affect that sort of stuff. How we respond to it is our responsibility. But it's, I think there's a general sense of powerlessness from people like, you know, if I had Putin here now, I'd give him a slap. But you know what? It's not, it's not all about him. There's lots of other stuff. And I don't want to get political about it. But, and, mm -hmm. and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But it's fucking grim. So my... As a creative person, as a writer, musician, songwriter, whatever, show off, I feel a sense of responsibility to try and put something into the world that is positive and hopeful, however unlikely it might seem. So it seems really unlikely as we sit here talking to each other on what was it, 7th of March 2022 um, that a middle-aged man who hardly anyone's heard of can say to you, this band is going to play Brixton Academy in the next two years. And we'll come and do the Barris as well. Why not? Right. It seems really unlikely, right? But I believe we can make it happen. Yeah. I believe, well, I believe as well. And I'm quite happy for you to play the Barrowlands. I was, I was already trying to work at 
um, how I could sort my holidays to get down to Brixton. But if you're going to play the Barrowlands, then I'm happy with that. Me being me and having a tendency to to keep doing things that make me feel good, which for most of my life was a bad thing, but these days is a good thing. I would imagine that if we played Brixton Academy, I want to do another gig as well. I, I don't think I'd be satisfied with just one. <laughs> well, they say one is too many and a thousand is never enough. So, so watch this space, as they say. And um, the thing that you know, we're going to we're going to start a you know a lot of social media stuff, which I'm really not very good at, but we're going to find someone that is good at it. And and if we do choose that name. We're going to go with Death Valley Yacht Club. It might be something else, but you know, people follow my personal Instagram or High Town Pirates, whatever. And we're going to invite people to join in over the next couple of years and go. Do you know what? I'll buy into that. Good. That story. That's a good story. That's positivity. I like that. I, and I think actually, it's a brilliant idea. It's it's a different way of doing stuff, and I think it will catch people's attention. I think, it, I think it's it's pointless me putting links to my music on Facebook. No one ever sees it. You know, it's not how Facebook works. It's it, it works against you. It doesn't. Work. But yeah. this is a different yeah. angle, which hopefully. So we'll see. So that's because one of the last questions you you wrote down for me was what happens next. You know, so so that's what is going to happen next. Is that over the next couple of years there'll be new music. There'll be some visual stuff. I've got a collection of creative people around here in Margate where I live so we can get together and we can do stuff and we're having our first get together this evening so um, yeah um, that's what happens next that that sounds amazing um, obviously just before we go into your heroes um, just going back to the, the Libertines just because we never really touched on that mm. um, turn with the Libertines and Obviously, well, the surrounds Pete. Well, how, how did all that get about? So I got, I'll try and be diplomatic. Um, six years ago, so when, when they released anthems for Doom Youth, I, I was approached by someone within the management to, how can I put it, um, meet Peter and, and see if some of what I had rubbed off on him. Mm-hmm. shall we say yeah. um, and did I want to go on tour and, and sort of hang out and um, you know try and build a friendship and maybe um, make the recovery look attractive uh-huh. I suppose um, and so I I hadn't you know I'd been doing some of that it's called recovery coaching and I, it's kind of one of the things that I do sometimes for a living sometimes not for a living. Um, and I'd worked with some other musicians um, who are currently, I think I could say, uh, successfully have worked with them and, and they're doing good stuff. And um, whilst I, I take no credit for the decisions that, that people make, ultimately people make their own decisions. Um, I think when you're confronted with someone who has been where you've been, used the same substances, in the same way for the same period of time has stopped doing that and seems quite happy with their lot then you can't unsee that yeah that makes any sense you know so that was so and we became really friendly and peter said to me when we finished this libertines tour how do you fancy coming on a solo tour with him um and being the support act and bringing guitar and 
bring your book and read some stuff out your book and play some songs and because I you know I, being around them had made me I hadn't played any or written any original music for 10 years at that point really? and, and I just and I hadn't even really got the libertines at that you know I'd never really they kind of passed me by because I was so entrenched in addiction when they popped up that I just mm -hmm. missed it you know um, and so it wasn't actually until I went to see them the Coventry Empire the first night of that tour that I finally went oh I get it now now I get it you know I get yeah. it I get it with and so we, we went on the, all over Europe together and then I, I joined Peter for a, a solo tour and after a show in Aberdeen up the road from you far away yeah. when the cows start looking strange turn right um, <laughs> After a show in Aberdeen, someone came up to me and they asked, well, could they get one of the songs that I played that night? Was it available to buy? And I said, no, I've never recorded. And they said, oh, you should. And I said, I know, but, you know, life's not like that. I'm too old and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, a few months later, they contacted me and, and they, they said, look, I'm in a position to help you. I know you're trying to help other people and you help people that I care about. And so I want to help you. And if you want to make an album, I'll pay for it. Wow. And I, and I was like, wow. Um, you know, as, as crazy as that sounds. So I made a series of phone calls, like literally in, over the next 60 minutes. So I had no bands. There was no High Town Pirates. There, wasn't, there was just me and an acoustic guitar. And, and I got in touch with some really old friends of mine. And we'd all played together in various bands over the years and, and some had recorded demos and others hadn't and and we got the studio booked and we had five rehearsals with a band that had never played together before uh, we had five rehearsals and then we went to the studio and we recorded the first album in five days and um, High Town Pirates was kind of born um, out of that and once we'd finished making an album I was like we should maybe do some shows and so we did a couple of shows with Peter and the Libertines and mm -hmm. and the, the first album got incredible reviews and um, you know a remarkable thing to do in just a few days because that's all it was um, then we did an EP which was produced by Youth which never got an official release unfortunately but it's it's there on bits of it are on you know available and then, and then the second album, which was done entirely with musicians that are sober, the last album, I'd made a decision that mm -hmm. another friend of mine sadly succumbed to their own addiction. Um, he was the last of the four people that I mentioned earlier. And it really, because I was kind of done with High Town Pirates at that point. I tried so hard to get an audience and, and just we couldn't make it happen. You know, we couldn't get people to listen to what we did. And and I kind of understand why. It's like, who's this middle-aged guy that's popped up from, you know, that that's not, yeah. I don't get yeah. it. No. It just, it's fucking hard. It's really hard if you're 21, you know, to, 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 yeah. to make an yeah. impact, to be heard in a world where, well, we've been talking for nearly two hours. There's probably been like five million albums released in the last two hours, you know, <laughs> on Spotify or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, it's difficult. It's really difficult. I would say this, I think... Um, it's really easy being all rock and roll when you're 21 or 22, you know, but I think you actually find out whether you really mean it when you get to my age and you're still fucking doing it. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a brilliant um, quote. 
That might be the best quote in my podcast ever. Well, I fucking, I, I fucking mean it. You know what I mean? So, um, anyway, so Peter has always been, he, Peter designed the um, sleeve for the first album. He was actually being interviewed by Six Music the other day. They were doing like a tour of his house in France and he went through his record collection. He was like, oh, look, Neil Young and Black Honey and oh, High Town Pirates. And, you know, he, he bless him. He, he's, he's tried really hard to, to, to give us a leg up, but, you know, the world won't listen to quote the Smiths album um, at the moment. Anyway, um, I owe them so much and they were the only band actually um, to say that they wanted to help High Town Pirates and our cause of, you know, waving the flag for creative mm. stuff in recovery. They were the only band that actually fucking... Them and Dodgy. Dodgy gave us some support slots and so did the Libertines. No one else did a fucking thing. Right. <laughs> I I my, mate, my, my mate's a big Dodgy fan. And I, I was texting him last night and saying, had he heard of you? Because I was speaking to you the day. Yeah. And he said no. And I sent him some of your stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I'm going to tell him now that that um, you supported Dodgy. He's probably, probably our first gig. realized our first two gigs were supporting Dodgy. So you know, um, thanks to you know Andy and, and Matt for, for you know that was fucking five years ago. You know, so anyway, uh, all things must pass, and 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 so here we are, you know, beginning of March, and you know I've got like twenty, I've got twenty, thirty new songs. So, you know, ideas for songs, some finished, some not. Um, I've written a follow-up to to my book, which I might just self-publish this year as well. It, it needs a bit of fine-tuning, but essentially it's finished it's like 130,000 words, and it sort of documents the what happened next bit because my first book finished essentially in, in 2012, you know, when I wrote it. Um, so that's 10 years ago. So a lot's happened and I want to talk, you know, and I, and I write a lot about recovery and being in a band. And blah, blah, blah. Um, the publishing world seem a bit reluctant to, to get involved because they they want, oh, can you write some more stories about being a drug addict in the 90s? I'm like, no, I've done that. You know, yeah. I don't want to go back to that. I want to write about what happened after that. Because well, that's that's And, and M did, did it follows you once to read the follow-up to the first book. They don't, they don't want to just have... Exactly. So what I'm going to do is I'm probably more than likely going to publish it on a platform called Substack, which is a great writing platform. And I've got a, a Substack link and I can send you all that stuff when we're ready to sort of launch it properly. Um, and we're just going to serialize it. You know, we're just going to sort of put it up there and you might have to pay five pounds a month, you know, but that's my work. You know, yeah. So if you don't want to pay for it, fine. But, you know, you can if you want. Um, you know, I sell... High Town Pirates vinyl because that's the only way we make any money. So, if anyone wants any vinyl, then I've got <laughs> got quite a lot of that kicking around still. Um, and there's going to be some new music um, under whatever name. Like I said, I'm not entirely sure. There'll be lots. Yeah, stick of with that. Stick with that. Death Valley Yacht Club. That's a brilliant name. That's yeah. a that's a cracking name for a band. Well, unfortunately, when I Googled it, there was a band in Canada. They haven't done anything since 2015 that had already thought of that name. Um, and I messaged them. Well, the, thing is, the only thing that really changes is it sort of dents my ego a little bit because I thought I was the smart cunt that thought it up, you know. But so, <laughs> someone else has. 
I still might use it. They don't. They don't exist anymore. So who, who knows? Well, they say talent borrows and genius steals, right? I think Noel Gallagher told me that once. So um, anyway, I, I think it'd make a great T-shirt, wouldn't it? Death yeah. Valley Yacht Club. Yeah. So we'll go with that. Um, loads more music. We, we had a little musical get together with a couple of people uh, on Saturday night around mine, and then we, as a group of people, we're all meeting, like I said, for the first time tonight. Um, and yeah. Um, I, I, you know, life, life in sobriety and recovery. Um, sometimes it's difficult because life is sometimes difficult for us all. At the moment, the world does seem a pretty scary place. Um, what can I do? I can, I can keep doing what I'm doing. Well, that that's brilliant, Simon. I wish you every success with this new venture. I hope it, I hope it's amazing for you. Um, I actually think Liverpool are going to win the league as well. I think we're going to go to the Etihad in April, and I think we're going to beat Man City, and I think we're going to win the league as well. Yeah, that 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 should be easy enough, shouldn't it? <laughs> that should well, be easy enough. That the other week when you were texting me, when was it? Tottenham beat Man City, didn't they? And you said yeah, they won yeah. the league wide open. I think that yeah. night I was doing a podcast with a Tottenham fan, um, <laughs> yeah. and, but. I had a conversation with with this guy, and he was he was, I kind of it was off mic, and right. some of the stuff he was saying, I thought you just don't know the half of it. Like, see, like money wise, like he's a total mm. fan. He's, oh, well, we get that stadium, and we deserve to, because we get that stadium, we deserve to 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 be higher up the league and things like that, and we deserve the money that we've got. And I'm like, ah, well, I'm a Celtic fan. And yeah. um, we probably 60,000 people week in, week out. You don't yeah. actually deserve anything, do you? It's like yeah. you can't play yeah. football. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we get 60,000 people every week and we're, we're not guaranteed yeah. Champions League or fuck all. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, anyway, so I, I hope Liverpool win the league. They, they are the, the kind of the one team in, in that league that kind of look genuine. Well, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so, who's coming to my my dinner? Yeah, yeah and and don't listen, don't um, don't scrimp on the numbers. It doesn't need to be four. You can have more than four if you want. People, there's some people have had like ten or ten or eleven. No, I, I, do you know what? I, I, I'm I'm going to stick with four. Hang on one second. So there was. There was a couple of, over the course of this conversation, this chat, mm-hmm. my, so the first person that I'd want to invite, and, and you said the word heroes, now, she would be bored out of her tiny little mind, but I'd have my daughter Tabitha there, because she is one of my heroes. I, I mm-hmm. love that girl, um, and, you know, I don't parent parental love for their children, I don't need to eulogise about that, people understand that. Um, but I do, I adore my, she's my only child and she's never seen me drink. She's never seen me use drugs and, and I'm there for her, you know, and she inspires me massively. And, and I think, as I've said a few times, you know, the world's the last few years, you know, she, she really became a sort of sentient human, human being. You know, when, when you're, when you're five, you don't know anything, do you? You're just five. You just play with what's the toys that are in front of you and six, mm-hmm. but you know, since, I guess since the Brexit and COVID and, and now the current, you know, problems in, in Ukraine, 
that's quite difficult for, for adults who can make some kind of sense of it. You know, we have a vocabulary and a language, and if we choose, we can research the pros and cons of all those things and make our decisions based on that. But when you're a child, even in an age of, of the internet, it must seem quite a scary world. Yeah. You know, particularly the last few years, a lot of division, a lot of polarisation, a lot of uncertainty. I think the thing with kids at that age, because I've, like I've got a 14-year-old boy, and I, I think a lot of the time, they kinda, they, they see through the bullshit at her. They, they, yeah. they see it better than us. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, I still think, you know, it, it, we talked about when we were, or I was young, and, and the spectre of, you know, the Cold War and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, she... Anyway, she's 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 making a fist of it, and, and she's trying her best, and she's having a go, and she's she's a remarkable young lady who is kind and, and generous of spirit and to other people, and so I'd invite her around, but she wouldn't come <laughs> because <laughs> because she's too cool, and 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 she wouldn't want to sit around with these people. Um, so the the other person, second on my list, would would and he couldn't come because he's dead. Would be Christopher Hitchens. Uh, uh-huh writer and well-known um, atheist <laughs> scholar um, and I admire him simply because whether you share his belief system or not I always thought he had a real dignity in how he argued his beliefs mm-hmm. and, um, and he afforded for the most part other people the dignity of their belief system as well and he was extremely funny ridiculously intelligent he had a command of the english language that would leave even someone like will self feeling like an idiot um but but never in a particularly showy way and i remember watching the last interview with him and jeremy paxman shortly before he died of cancer mm-hmm. and paxman saying to him now that you know you're going to be dead in i think a few months time are you not do you still not want to believe in god and he said something like, why would I change my entire life's work based on fear? Oh, and I just, yeah. just like blew me away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't think I don't take that as a quote. It was something like that. You know, he said he, he stayed true to his beliefs and, and you have to respect that. And I just think he'd be a great guest. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, invite, I'd invite Bill Shankly if he were alive as well, because he's my kind of, you know, the socialism I believe in is where everyone gets a share, an equal share, and it's the way he set up Liverpool Football Club. And and I think uh, he was a remarkable human being as well, you know. And his story, you know, coming from Gladbrook and a family of ten, I think, and they all played yeah. football yeah. and they had nothing. Came from my area as well, well, Shankly. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm sure did I read somewhere? Um, did. Was he associated with Man United at some point, or did he? No, 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 you know, the players that played for him were privileged. And, you know, these days players aren't like that, are they? You know, they're yeah. fucking overprivileged and entitled and have, you know, so 
He harks back to a time of Jock Steen and, and, and Matt Busby and all those guys that... Yeah. And that, that that leads back to what I said earlier about Liverpool and how they, they're like the, the most genuine out of the, these clubs in the league. And that the genuine the genuineness comes from people like Bill Shankly that have built that over the years. Well, I, I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I, I I go to the game a lot. I spent a lot of time in Liverpool. Um, I remember coming out of the when we beat Barcelona four nil, and taking the train up to go up, and and, and I had mates taking the piss, going, "Fucking what are you doing? Wasting your time going up there? You're never going to beat Barcelona four nil." Blah blah. And I'm like, listen, as as Shanky once said, you know, if you don't support us when we lose, don't bother turning up when we win. Yeah. And, uh, and meeting all my mates in, in a, a pub we go in with Tommy Thomas Frost just, just by Anfield before the game. And it was this kind of gallows humour, you know, and, and scousers do that better than anyone, in my opinion, you know, of kind of like, what if they score? Oh, then we'll have to score five. Oh, fuck it, we'll score five then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone that I sat with anyway in the pub before the game, hand on heart, was like, what, well, we're going to go and do fucking Barcelona 4-0 I mean, no one really believed that um, but there was an optimism of it like fuck it until it becomes impossible we'll believe right so and, yeah. and I think that that comes as much from people's struggle with with Hillsborough you know and, and that ongoing and still you know unresolved search for, for justice and I won't say retribution justice you know it still hasn't happened and may never happen um, and you see that in, 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 you know, in all working class communities, actually, and particularly port cities, I think, where mm-hmm. people have grown up with an in, influx of immigrants and, and, and the benefits of that. And, you know, people are just generally softer at heart. They're harder because they have to be because of the lives they have, but their hearts are softer, I think. You know, and, um, yeah. Anyway, so we, yeah, obviously the game, we, we won it 4-0 and, and his. <laughs> So the fellow that was stood next to me, was, I say stood because none of us were sat for very long. I don't know if you cast your mind back, but that night Barcelona were, were wearing this sort of canary yellow strip, their away strip. It was kind mm-hmm. of like a green luminescent thing. And he said to me, um, we go turn all up and he turns to me and goes, fucking hell, lad, if you squint, it's like we're playing Norwich. And then it gets to 4 0. He turns around and goes, I fucking told you, we're playing fucking Norwich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just, anyway, Bill Shankly, he's coming. Um, I'd have to invite Pete Townsend mm-hmm. because I think it was either Townsend or Weller, but I've, I've, I've met Weller and I've met Townsend once very, very briefly for like literally two minutes, but I spent quite a lot of time with, I've had dinner with Paul Weller it didn't, it didn't come on a plate, put it that way a long time ago <laughs> um, I, but I genuinely I think as a songwriter and a lyricist um, Pete Townsend is as much of a genius as, as Beethoven was or Mozart or fucking Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or any of these people or, you know, 
Um, and, I'm, and I'm aware I'm just talking about loads of blokes here, by the way. And if Tabitha was sat next to me, she'd be going, what about Maya Angelo? And what about Marianne Faithful? And what about Debbie Harry? And, and you know, but um, we're going to talk about football, you know, with, with, anyway. Um, so I'd have, I'd have Pete Townsend and um, with as much humility as I could muster, um, which isn't much at the best of times, I kind of thank him really for just um, inadvertently, obviously, giving me something to hold on to in those really dark years of my childhood. Mm-hmm. For writing songs that were angry, that expressed what I had no capacity to express, but resonated with me. Yeah. So that's that's what I'd say to him. Um, and um, so that's three people. Um, I, 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 I put Tabitha down, but she said she wouldn't come. Um, so I, so I am gonna I'm gonna invite a woman. I'm gonna invite Marianne Faithful um, because I bet she's got some amazing stories. And the fact I know she's got some amazing stories. I was listening to Broken English, an album from the eighties by her, during the other day, and uh, it's a fucking great album. A really really good album. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think she'd keep us all in check. You know what boys are like when, when you've got. It's why I always try and have women in the band. Right. It just, just kind of all the fucking puerile dick jokes all kind of stop, or or the women actually tell them and they're much better at it. Um, it just kind of keeps us in check a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, too many, uh, too many guys, and it, it turns into a fucking school ground, doesn't it? It's a primary school, you know. Yeah. So, um, so, I, I, so that would be it. it. Would be Christopher Hitchens, Pete Townsend, Bill Shankly, and if she'd come, we should have to come because it's a fantasy dinner, isn't it? Um, Marianne Faithful. Brilliant. And I would. So I was going to try and sound like I'm some sort of decent cook. I can cook three things quite well, and all of which my wife taught me. Um, and she taught me one thing, which is, it's baked salmon. So you get a salmon fillet. And then you cover it with pesto, green or red, depending on what you like. And then you sit it on a row of green beans, slice a lemon, put the lemon on top of it. You wrap it all up in tin foil and you bung it in the oven for 25 minutes. And then you serve it with spinach and rice. And you feel like you can run around the world 50 times. It's really good for you. I don't think Bill Shankly would eat it, so I'd have to do like a roast chicken for <laughs> 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 Yorkshire pudding and loads of gravy. Yeah, that's a, that sounds amazing. I'm gonna, I might uh, cook that tonight. I might, yeah, it's really good. Really good. I mean, look, for someone that spent the first half of his life sticking fucking shit into his system all day, every day, I've, I've tried in the latter part of my life to try to, you know, I don't smoke or vape. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm far from perfect with what I eat. I walk a lot. I, uh, I cycle. I do little cycle tours down here in Margate. I want to keep making music, Martin. You know, I want to. St- I, I think I'm getting better at it, not worse. And I want to stick around. And I want to stick around and watch my daughter grow up. And I want to be there for her. And if she decides to get married to whoever, whatever, <laughs> when she's a bit older, I'd like to be there for that. You know, um, I really would. We'll see. Well, definitely. 
And you're kicking about for the next two years anyway, because we're going to see you at Brixton in the Barrowlands. Well, exactly, exactly. So there you go. So it's been a pleasure speaking to you today, Simon. Um, I'll post all your links. I'll post a link for your your book on Amazon and wherever else you can get it. I'll post that. I'll post a link for your um, Facebook. Is there anything else? Anything else? So I do. So High Town Pirates is on. Twitter and Instagram, which is probably a better place to get me than Facebook, to be honest. Because right. if you post any, so um, if you just Google High Town Pirates Twitter, High Town Pirates Instagram, you can get links for that. Um, and if people want to follow me, then I can send them links to Substack when I start doing the book. And uh, if they want to buy any High Town Pirates vinyl, you know, then let me know. Cool, pleasure, pleasure having you in. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly enjoy. Thank you.